Amen. All right. Quote, women are not happy even when they do follow the blueprint for marriage and family. End quote. So wrote Germaine Greer in 1970 in her manifesto, The Female Eunuch, in which she argued that the nuclear family is an oppressive structure designed to prey on women for men's pleasure. She boldly envisioned a day when men would thank women for moving society beyond their traditional family to a new vista of freedom and openness. Now, on one hand, generally speaking... Our culture has inherited her suspicion of men and women playing uh, different roles in the home, wouldn't you say? But on the other hand, our culture hasn't yet jettisoned the institution of the family as she hoped. We still want the family, but we want to do it our way with whatever combination of genders and roles we prefer. Well, how should we think about men and women when it comes to the home? We began to look at this last week. We saw from Ephesians 5 that a husband is the provider and protector who lays down his life in love like Christ does the church. And we saw how God calls the wife to submit to her husband's leadership, not because she's inferior, but because she is called and created to reflect how the church submits to Christ. We also thought about singleness in the home. For both men and women, because the Bible celebrates and uh, the value and advantages of singleness, see 1 Corinthians 7, and remember that Jesus lived an abundant, full life as a single, celibate man. So single men, whether they live with relatives, roommates, or alone, are still wired for, and they are still wired to provide for, and protect others in a manly and fatherly way. And single women, likewise, are still wired to cultivate life and help others flourish in a motherly and womanly way, whether that be roommates, hospitality to those in need, evangelism to neighbors, etc. Today we're going to see that First Peter 3 has a lot to say about manhood and womanhood in marriage. And then we're going to turn to a grab bag of practical questions that fall within the realm of prudence. Sweetie, could I have my Bible? Thank you so much. So the, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3, and then we're going to turn to a grab bag of practical questions that fall within the realm of prudence. So how do husbands and wives manage decision making? Thank you. Various duties, disciplining the kids, uh, and stuff like that. So let me say at the outset, for those who are single, today is going to feel like the most marriage-focused of the whole course as we're trying to get down to the nitty-gritty of how men and women's roles are expressed within the family setting. Don't tune out, though. All right? Three pieces of advice for those of you who are single. Uh, advice number the one. Try to learn from these principles about general ways that God has made men and women beautifully distinct. That's going to be helpful and good for you. Number the number two, use these teachings as a way to pray for your married friends. So they need your support and your encouragement. Okay, and then number the number three. I know I'm doing that wrong. It's just for fun, so it's okay. So, sorry. If you desire to be married in the future then use this time to help you see what really matters in a spouse and to think about how God might call you to live in marriage, okay? So helpful to you if you are single and here, all right? Let's begin by turning to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adore themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, what does Peter say here about men and women in the marriage relationship? He addresses wives first, and he teaches, first of all, that godly submission is powerful, beautiful, and rewarding. So, we see back in 2.12 that Peter is calling believers as a royal priesthood to live among the Gentiles with honorable conduct. He's saying to non-Christians, oh no, excuse me, He is saying, non-Christians are going to see your life, and your life is either going to commend the gospel, it's going to make it look good, or it's going to commend the gospel and make it seem less good and less plausible to a watching world. And how do believers commend the gospel? How do they make the gospel attractive? Strangely enough, by submitting to authority. Peter says... In our relationships, whether it's citizens submitting to the government, servants to masters, and here, wives to husbands, we model what it looks like to be people who delight in God's authority. So if you read through 1 Peter, it's, it's a lesson in submitting to authority. Okay? Peter basically says, you make the gospel look good by whether or not you submit to authority. The authorities that God's placed in your life. If you submit to them then you make God and the gospel look good. If you don't, you you present a distorted view of God and the gospel. So, and in fact, what's in view specifically here is a wife making the gospel compelling to none other than her husband who happens to not be a believer. He hasn't obeyed the gospel word. So, what does this attitude of submission look like in marriage whether your husband's converted or whether your husband is not converted. Peter notes three things. First, it involves respectful and pure conduct in verse 2. In verse 1, Peter even says that this conduct can win a husband to the Lord. So, ladies, by the way you submit... God can use your behavior to convince a husband that the gospel is true. He's giving us a picture of a wife who exhibits glad servant-heartedness, not grumbling stubbornness. So she affirms and respects whatever's good about her husband's leadership. She helps him flourish, even when it's hard. She's not a doormat. She has her own ideas and her own opinions but she uses them to help her husband rather than undermine her husband. She may disagree with him sometimes and confront him when he's in sin, but she is a joy to lead. He recognizes that he needs her, and she shows that she's willing to trust him. So that's number one. Second, this attitude of submission isn't seen in a woman's external style but in, quote, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Verse 4. Now, Peter's not forbidding all jewelry or certain hairstyles here, but what he's saying is that you shouldn't rely on your appearance to make yourself attractive to your husband. Physical beauty is superficial and fleeting. It tends to call attention to itself, but spiritual beauty, character lasts and becomes richer over time and it tends to flow outward and beautify others. Peter says that when a woman values this kind of beauty, she's like a daughter of Sarah. She has that beauty of character that makes her wonderfully compelling to her husband. Now, please don't misunderstand. This imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit doesn't mean that introversion is godliness, okay? So this, this isn't a matter of how much you talk, but of where your heart rests. 
So what he's talking about is a woman who gladly rests content in following her husband's leadership rather than brashly taking the reins. This is the spirit that is very precious in God's sight. So it's not talking about extroversion or introversion, anything like that. It's talking about a frame of heart toward your husband. This is the spirit that is very precious in God's sight. Third, this submissive posture helps a woman trust and do good and not fear. Why would Paul mention fear here? Well, because he knows that having this kind of spirit toward a person you know to be a sinner, submitting yourself to him and committing to follow his leadership, that can be a frightful thing. Can all the women say amen? Right? That can be a frightful... (laughs) That was kind of a hearty amen. Uh, All right. And yet, that is what God has called... Go on then, Herman. Uh, uh. <laughs> and yet, maybe. And yet, that's what God calls a woman to do. And it requires her, so this is where the rubber hits the road, it, it requires her to put her ultimate faith in God, her final provider, her final protector, and her final authority. So submitting to her husband actually fuels faith because it causes her and stirs in her the need and the impetus to rely on God daily. Um, No, she should not keep submitting if her husband becomes abusive and forfeits his right to lead. In that case, she should love him by getting other authorities involved to protect herself and prevent him from the consequences of his own future sin. But normally... Submission, even to an imperfect man, yields not fear, but restful trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it pushes you to trust the Lord, who's your ultimate provider, protector, and preserver, who is leading you through your husband's leadership. Now, to be clear, submission isn't necessarily a certain behavior that a wife will do every day. Most days, the couples uh, will simply be living life, seeking to honor the Lord, not facing major decisions and disagreements. You will sharpen one another as equals, as intimate companions. I would say that submission is more of an ongoing posture and pattern of trustful respect and following. You know, it flavors the whole marriage relationship. It's, it's all of life. So it's not necessarily a certain behavior, but it's, it's a posture that flavors your whole life in marriage. And I hope what you see in all this is that submission in marriage isn't a burden. It's a blessing. So the wife who embraces this calling doesn't sacrifice her ability to influence others and make a positive contribution to her family. Rather, it is through submission, by God's grace, that she powerfully produces growth, godliness, and fruit in her husband and in her children, humanly speaking. We know God is doing all of it, but humanly speaking, it's through this submission that she does much good work in her family with her husband and her children. Now, in verse 7, turn, turn the page in the handout, Peter instructs husbands that godly leadership is considerate and selfless. First, Peter says that husbands should live with their wives in an understanding way. Paul calls husbands to love their wives and nourish them physically and spiritually in Ephesians 5. And Peter helpfully spells out that love involves not just caring for your wife, but knowing her, seeking to understand her deep down. This is very hard. Can I get an amen? There we go. That wasn't very hearty. All the guys are like, I'm not going to say amen to them. It's because you're cowards, men. You know it's hard. Uh, All right. Okay. Uh, Before I get in trouble, let me just keep going here. So seeking to understand her. Deep down, marriage is a union not just of two separate people, 
but people who are differently gendered. Thus, they need to work to know each other. Union requires intimate knowledge. A husband should spend time listening to his wife, contemplating what makes her tick, studying her. So husbands, do you know what are your wife's desires, fears, and frustrations? What makes her feel loved and cared for at the end of the day? What are her strengths? How can you spur her on as she serves Christ? What are her struggles? How can you comfort her where she is weak? Those are the kind of questions we should be asking. Notice that Peter's command to you as husband isn't that you should lead your wife. That is assumed. His command is that you should know your wife. If you don't gently and humbly seek to understand her, your leadership won't conform to the servant-hearted leadership modeled by Christ. Okay? So, seek to know your wives. Second, Peter says that husbands should show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does Paul mean by weaker vessel? I think Wayne Grudem's analysis in his commentary on 1 Peter is most balanced and helpful. I'm going to read you this quote. Quote, Peter does not specify the way in which he understands the woman to be the weaker vessel. But the context would make it appropriate for him to have in mind any kind of weakness of which husbands would need to be cautioned not to take advantage. This would certainly include the idea that by and large women are physically weaker than men, i.e. if men tried they usually could overpower their wives physically. But the context also shows that women are weaker in terms of authority in the marriage, see verse 1, and also verses 4 and 5, or 5 and 6, excuse me. And Peter therefore directs husbands that instead of misusing their authority for selfish ends, they should seek to use it to bestow honor on their wives. Yet there may also be a third sense of weakness, which would fit the context, because it is something husbands should not take advantage of, namely a greater emotional sensitivity. While this is something that is also a great strength, it is none it is nonetheless means that wives it nonetheless means that wives are often more likely to be hurt deeply by the conflict within a marriage or by inconsiderate behavior on the part of the husband. Knowing this, Christian husbands should not be harsh. He references Colossians 1:9, which specifically says husbands do not be harsh with your wives. Um, knowing this, Christian husbands should not be harsh, Colossians 3.19, or fill their marriage relationship with criticism and conflict, end quote. Now, with that under our belt, what is the command here? Well, the command is to honor your wives, brothers, to honor your wives. What does that look like? I think Owen Strand uh, helpfully says something, and I'm going to quote what he says. And this actually dips back into what does it mean that she's the weaker vessel too. But it actually goes further and it reminds us as men how we're to treat her, how we're to honor her. So here's what Owen Strand says. Quote, The woman, Peter says, must be shown honor. Some commentators note that this is an unusual admonition in the literature of the day. It is not only the woman who honors the man in the biblical mind, the man honors the wife. Think about how counterintuitive that is. He does not sigh exasperatedly at her, or get mad at her, or turn his back on her. Even as she is a weaker vessel, he sticks with her, he honors her, she is on average weaker than him physically and she is oriented towards complex emotional care in a way that he is not. But a godly husband is not to take these differences as bad or annoying. He is to honor her as weaker. He is not better than her. They are co-heirs of divine grace. As Peter says, she is an heir with you of the grace of life. Verse 7. He goes on. There is simply no framework here for superiority in the man's mind. On the contrary, the sexes are called to esteem and even reverence one another. If the man fails to do so, the Lord will 
And listen to this, brothers. Uh, I'm quoting Owen here, but he's just expanding on what the text itself says. So go to the text and be warned there. He says, if the man fails to do so, if he fails to honor her and dwell with her in an understanding way as he's been exhorting, uh, the Lord will frustrate his life. He will not hear his prayers. He will shut him down. This is a profound call for us as husbands to sacrifice sacrificially, intentionally, and with great care, love our wives. Men, are you living up to this standard? End quote. By the way, I really like Owen Strand. I think he's a very, very uh, solid and trustworthy voice in our day of confusion. He actually wrote an updated anthropology. Anthropology, big word, just talking about the study of man. Um, most seminaries use a book that was written by a theologian named Anthony Hokema, who wrote an excellent anthropology of the doctrine of man back in the 70s, but a lot has happened since 1970s, and Owen Strand just wrote a new anthropology um, and, um, and actually got it and read it in preparation of this class. He is an excellent, excellent theologian and a thoughtful brother. So just to put that on your mind. Uh, and he's very involved in the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, by the way. So just another voice you could take note of. Let me pause there and give you opportunity to ask questions about anything we've covered so far. We're going to get into kind of some practical stuff here in a minute. But do you have anything about these verses that's sticking out to you that you want to ask or that you're wondering about? That you referenced in Colossians, I missed that. Colossians 3.19. I, I, it was just one. I think I misspoke the first time I said it. I think I said Colossians 3.9. It's 3.19. Carol. It's I don't know what else to take it as but that. I think there is some way in which our prayers are hindered and not uh, effective uh, if we are not being faithful to our covenant responsibilities to our wives as lined out in 1 Peter 3. I'd like to come up with some alternate explanation, but I, I, <laughs> I just think that's what the word says. I don't know how to get around that. It's a tough, it's a tough verse. And of course, I actually don't want to get around that. I want to embrace the word of God. I just say that because I recognize it's a weighty verse. Any questions on this stuff? Well, how about we go into the practicals, and then after the practicals, you may have other questions about those, or we can circle back to these. Okay, so let's just, let's turn now to a few questions that fleshed out practically how all this looks like in real marriage, and how do these principles play out on the ground. Number one, how should husbands and wives make decisions? There's a delicate balance, a dance you might say, uh, when a husband and wife face consequential decisions. On the one hand, as head of the family, Genesis 2, Ephesians 5:23, the husband should feel the responsibility to set the direction and lead. He's not to abdicate or passively stand by, hoping his wife will just make the decision for him. Okay. On the other hand, he must remember that his leadership is to be marked by service, that his wife is a fellow heir with him of God's promises, and that she often has complementary strengths uh, that, that he does not. So because of that, the husband needs to listen and enlist his wife's wisdom and perspective about the issue at hand. The wife, I would encourage you not to simply blindly follow your husband, but to use your resources to empower and to help your husband. They should make the decision as each other's most trusted friend and counselor. To husbands, to love like Christ will frequently mean denying your own preferences and desires to see God's glory in your wife's good. So let me just be clear here to the guys in the room, as we've touched on last week, it is, likely, it is likely sin, and it is certainly stupid to play the headship card on stuff like what restaurant to visit 
or how to spend your free time on a Saturday. Uh, husbands, I would not encourage you to play the I'm the leader and you must submit to me card uh, on mere matters of preference. Okay, I, I think that is, is likely sin. It is certainly dumb. Um, what about a significant matter? When you talk and pray and you talk and pray and you simply cannot come to an agreement. I like how Tim Keller puts it in The Meaning of Marriage. He says this, quote, In the vast majority of cases, the stalemate is broken because each will try to give the other his or her pleasure. The wife will try to respect the husband's leadership and the husband will in turn try to please his wife. But in those rare cases where no agreement can be found, it is the husband's responsibility to lead graciously and gently, and it is the wife's responsibility to follow, humbly and not angrily or dragging her feet. End quote. I think that's a good quote. I think it's a good quote. So husbands, your wife will sometimes struggle to follow your leadership. Be patient with her. Recognize that you have given her reasons every day to be annoyed with you. Um, figuring out how to take the lead in decision making while honoring and empowering your wife is much more art than science. <laughs> okay. So I encourage you to sit down for coffee with an older uh, man or a man who's been married for longer than you have and to talk to him about these things. Help me learn to be a better leader of my wife, this wonderful creature that is so hard to understand in so many ways. Come on, you know it's true. You are all cowards. Nobody's even laughing. But you know it's true. Okay, wives, your husband is going to screw up. Jesus doesn't, but they do. I am sorry. But that is also why husbands make terrible saviors. So, look to Jesus as you seek to be quick to forgive and help your husband see why the ship sank, if the ship sank. Okay? So, uh, review, forgive, learn, talk, move on. Okay? Now, let me actually just say that uh, one danger I find common in most men, just in, in pastoring here, um, I've encountered a few instances of overbearing authority use. I've encountered a few, a few instances, not, not really too many, frankly. But one danger I have found much more common, men, is actually not overbearing autocratic behavior, but lazy passivity. I've experienced that much more. Uh, in my time pastoring so far. And I actually don't think that's just my experience pastoring. As I've talked with other pastors, that's what they seem to be experiencing as well. Not necessarily autocratic authority. That may have been for a for another day. Um, but it's, it's more just passivity in men. So don't, brothers, uh, so here's the word to you. Here's my encouragement to you, brothers. Don't pursue passivity for the sake of peace. Okay? As you think about decision-making and leading your home. Don't pursue passivity for the sake of peace. Too often we trade temporary peace for lasting division. And that's exactly what you're doing when you cave on what you think is best simply to avoid a hard discussion with potentially painful consequences if you're thinking your wife just isn't going to hear you. Okay? So, please don't think that love means don't upset your wife. And please don't think that keeping the peace is dwelling with your wife in an understanding way. Both of those thoughts are actually self-serving, not seeking her good, but seeking your own good in the form of peace. Biblical love says, I will risk upsetting because I love your lasting good and our family's lasting good more than our temporary peace. Now notice what... The whole word I just gave to you implies, though, it implies that you're seeking to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and you're seeking to lead in a godly and self-sacrificing way. It implies that you, you have clarity and conviction on something, and you're, you're feeling like you do need to move this direction, and it's for the good of your family. That's, that's what I'm assuming as I come to this and share that with you, okay? Now, let me just pause there and say, do we have any 
Any questions there? I mean, shoot, there's bound to be some questions on, on that. You guys are... Lee asked me earlier, when, when can we have coffee? Maybe we need to get coffee at core seminars. Sonia? Um, there we go. There we go. This should be good one. Uh, I kind of know the answer, but I want to maybe benefit other people too. Um, so when it comes to submission, I think one of the hard things for me is when it comes to differences of opinion about the safety of the kids. So I think one of the biggest things recently um, was, you know, Baxter's eight, almost nine. He's tall for his age. You know, he wants to sit in the front seat, and I'm like, no. You know, he has to be certain, you know, he has to be 10 or 12 or whatever age it is, you know. And Jimmy's like, I don't want to sit in the front, he's in the car with me. And so, you know, huge thing happened. Um, talked to Mary Margaret about it. Um, and ultimately, you know, she was like, I think that this is something that, you know, you should submit to Jimmy, you know. Um, but my question is, how, like, can you help me to, to do that joyfully and to not be like, okay, well, when you're with daddy, you know, he's going to be reckless with your safety, and when you're with me, I'll be taking care of you. You know what I mean? Because it other things, too. Like, you know, he might let them play on the wood pile. That happened this morning. I'm like, you can't play on the wood pile. All the wood could fall on you. And it's like, daddy's everything. And he's like, yeah, I think that's fine. And so it's usually those things that I'm like, you know? Yeah. So I think I think you have to beware of catastrophizing, okay? Which you've 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 well you've just catastrophized several times, okay? I think you have to beware of catastrophizing because I think you've catastrophized several times. I also think uh, I love you, Sonia. I also think that if if only if only if only ladies raised kids, they would not be the men that they're going to need to be. I I would also say that there is some risk inherent uh, in just the way men are built and they need, to, they need to experience those things in order for them to grow and mature and to be courageous men uh, who are risk takers. So merely playing on a, on a wood pile isn't necessarily all that bad, um, even though it could result in, in being hurt. Um, and I would actually point you to I would point you to a book that I've just recently read that I found was extremely helpful. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, how how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Um, and so I would point you to that book, and you and Jimmy could actually read it together and discuss it. So am I saying that you that the safety isn't important at all? Of course, no. That's not that's not what I'm saying. Um, but um, I I. I am saying, well, I'm going to start repeating myself, so I won't repeat myself. I hope that's helpful. Is that helpful? Yes. Okay. So basically, follow your husband's lead. Follow your husband's lead. That's right. <laughs> um, now, if he's like, let's just set fire to the house, because that sounds fun. Well, then that's, a, that's not catastrophizing. That's just don't do it. Uh, you know. Um, Yes. Do you think that the law states, though, that, that children need to be 12 before they can sit in the front seat with their backs? Uh, I am not aware of what the law states in regards to when children can sit in the front seat. So, consult the law. <laughs> well, you could appeal to the law then with your husband. Other questions? That's a good question. That's a good question. Other questions? Okay, let's keep going. Maybe, maybe another brave soul will ask a question here shortly. Uh, you do serve us all well, because those are good. Like, that's a great, honestly, a great situation that I'm sure many uh, wives, and, I mean, my wife and I never have questions like that. Um, all right, just kidding. Number two, how should a husband and wife manage other duties and responsibilities? A good general principle is that duties and responsibilities should be allocated in such a way that both encourages and enhances the feminine and masculine aspects of gender. That's a principle, but the Bible doesn't lay down any hard and fast rules. So there are many things in the daily affairs of a household that Scripture doesn't characterize as either masculine or feminine. Running an errand, watering plants cooking a meal, those are household duties, 
but we would be hard to we would be hard pressed to say that they are uniquely male or female. I would suggest that men generally should bear the more physically taxing tasks of the home, especially if weaker vessel in 1 Peter 3 is a reference to physical strength, which I think it does include. So whether it's moving heavy furniture, transporting those 30-pound propane grills from the car to, uh, to the grill, I think men should instinctively try to bear those responsibilities. And also, considering uh, the responsibility to protect and provide, I'm also not going to ask Kristen to check out the suspicious noise uh, in the house at night. Um, and assuming that I'm both present and physically able, that's just what I need to do as a man. Similarly, thinking of the charge in Genesis 2.15 for Adam to work and keep the garden, it will be consistent with a masculine disposition for a husband to manage more of the affairs related to provision. So if there's no food on the table, he should feel the ultimate responsibility for that. But the husband's leadership and provision doesn't mean that he must do it all. His leadership doesn't mean that he does every activity... Nor, on the other hand, does her submission mean she does everything while he stands aloof. Rather, his leadership will look like taking loving initiative to set the priorities and direction of the family and conspiring with her on how they can together honor Christ. His wife may be more detail-oriented and thus more responsible for handling the bills. He might be more gifted in the kitchen than she is. Either way, they each lean into each other's gifts while at the same time expressing their gender in distinctly, distinctively feminine, motherly, or masculine, fatherly ways. Broadly speaking, if we just think about Titus 2.5 from last week where we saw that mature women taught other women to be busy at home, a woman's disposition will be more oriented towards the relationships of the home and the hour-by-hour care of the kids. Note how the woman in Proverbs 31 is concerned to clothe and to feed her family. Okay, The important thing is to discuss it. It is the husband's job to lead them in discussing their various stewardships together so that there is mutual understanding and not confusion. Okay? So, it's the husband's role to lead them in discussion about their various stewardships, various responsibilities, various roles, to lead them in discussing those things so there's mutual understanding, so that there's not confusion, so there's encouragement, and everybody is getting the things done that need to be done. Three, how should husband and wife lead, care for, and discipline the kiddos? So, as we've talked about, the husband is ultimately responsible for the spiritual and physical oversight of the home, including the instruction and discipline of the children. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul didn't say, Mothers, train your children up in the ways of the Lord. He said, Fathers, Train your children up in the ways of the Lord. I think that's significant. It is fundamentally, brothers, your responsibility to do this. Now, in a fallen world, single, uh, so, you know, some single moms or women married to unbelievers will have to take up this responsibility, and God will provide. Uh, God will provide for them. But if there is a Christian man in the home, it is your responsibility, brothers, to see that devotions are taking place. It is your responsibility to see that the family makes it to church. And by the way, let me just put, just put a quick just like timeout pause. Brothers, let me just say that your kids, I have seen this over and over and over, your kids, brothers, are going to embrace whatever attitude about church that you have. So if you are excited about church, your kids will be excited about church. If the church is more like an unwelcome task on your to-do list, then it will be the same for them too. Brothers, you are the single most important factor in whether or not your kids like church. Now, within that ultimately responsibility, however, the pattern in Scripture is that the immediate day-to-day 
management of children and the domain of the household falls underneath the purview of the wife. 1 Timothy 5.14 says wives are to, quote, manage their households. Greek word for manage is a strong term. It implies action, activity. It involves thoughtfulness, planning, a high level of attention and competence along the lines of Proverbs 31. Remember that Eve's wife is, is the Eve's, Eve's wife. Scratch that. That's not what I meant. Remember that Eve's role as the life giver from Genesis 3, Eve's role as the life giver from Genesis 3. Practically, this means that mom will likely spend more time with the kids, at least during the day and especially when they're young, and will discipline her children as appropriate when her husband isn't present. Sisters, just a word to you. If you are spending most of your hours these days caring for kids, remember that that is an awesome calling God has given to you. The days may seem repetitive and exhausting, and you may feel like you're making no progress or little progress on some days. And maybe that's the case. But God sees your service as wonderful, and he delights to provide you with grace and strength. So just be encouraged with that, moms. A father, meanwhile, should teach his children to respect honor and esteem their mother whether he's present or not and brothers let me just pause again and just take a a quick side note and i just want to encourage you brothers to take a zero tolerance policy as it relates to any of your kids showing disrespect towards your wife or their mother okay so i would encourage you that disrespect brothers towards your wife their mother needs to be met with swift and sure discipline Okay, just a just a quick word here. Uh, And then also, brothers, I would encourage you, do not be passive in instruction and discipline of your kids, leaving the work to your wife while you're present. So when you come home, I know that you are tired. I know the feeling. Right. But uh, your wife is tired also. (laughs) Your wife is very tired because she's been with the kids all day. So I just want to encourage you. Um, not to just think of home time as me time, but to think of home time as I'm in the game with my wife time, right? I'm here to help with the kids. I'm here to be engaged with the kids. I'm not just sitting down. I want to be, be in the game. I want to help her. She's tired too, okay? So it's that sacrificial leadership idea um, that's not easy, but God gives grace, okay? So... Uh, And as we think about marriage and parenting, we have got to remember that there are many believers who desire marriage or children, and the Lord in his mysterious providence hasn't given these gifts. So no matter your circumstances in life, don't neglect the Bible's call to manage your home in an honorable way, whether you're single or a married couple without kids. Men, use your home to provide for and protect others. Host meals, have people over to encourage them spiritually, take care of your living space, show brotherly care for your roommates and neighbors. Ladies, make your home a place where your spiritual beauty shines. Use your home to foster spiritual life in others, whomever God puts in your path. Practice hospitality, cultivate sisterly love for roommates, friends, church members, your community. Take these principles and apply them in your situation, even if you are praying for a spouse or for children and waiting for God to answer those prayers. So let me stop there. We've got 10 minutes. What questions do you have? What questions do you have? Levi, is there a, is there a question? Okay, go ahead, Levi. You're saying that if you're excited for church, it's cool to be excited. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that never happens in our household. Yeah, I say that as a proverbial like wisdom, brothers. Uh, so there are there are certainly exceptions, but I have seen it time and time again. Where if 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 dad is engaged in the spiritual life of the family just consistently, and he's excited to go to church 
then the kids, even if they're not believers, are like, yeah, this is, this is what we do. Um, I know brothers in this room who have modeled that so well, and their kids who are in college who are not Christians <laughs> are going to church, or their kids who are out of college and not Christians are still going to church, right? That's a really cool thing. Uh, that's a really cool thing. Um, so I recognize that doesn't happen to everybody, and that's not the case for everybody. And you may be doing a bang-up job, and your kids may not be excited about church. But you also need to be honest with yourself, and I just need to tell you, if you're not excited, your kids definitely aren't going to be excited. Thanks, Levi. Keeping me honest, you're a good man. Other questions? Reuben has a question. Brad has a question. Reuben, maybe later, buddy, okay? Why don't you filter your question through, Mommy? Okay. Go ahead, Brad. Hey, so Matt, and Matt, obviously, you've got... Can you, can you, I'm sorry, I just can't hear you. I have a bad ear. Uh, in our home, we obviously have a situation where, where my wife has this vast area of expertise that I know reasonably little about, right? Medicine and pediatrics. Yes, sir. So how do, how do we work things such that I take full advantage of all the wisdom that God's given her in this particular realm without ceding essentially all the leadership of our kids' health to her? Because obviously I should be, I'm totally grateful for everything that God's given her and all of her expertise. I'd be idiotic not to disvalue that. But how do I make sure that I'm still exercising leadership in that? Would you be willing... So I only ask this because I know that this is something that you've thought about a lot, right? So I actually think you're more qualified to answer that specific question, and I think you could benefit us if you would share with us, how have you done that, Brad, in your particular setting? No, really, it's a fine question. How have you done that, brother? Uh, okay, well, how have I to do it? How have I done it? Um, um, I think in general, you know, it. I think I have. I have. We. I mean, we talk about what we're going to do with respect to the kids' health. She also doesn't play doctor mom, so she's not. You know. Assuming that she knows best for our children the way she assumes she knows best for her patients. Because you've got, uh, you're, you're, you've got, you're never as objective with your own kids. So that helps because she's got a humility to say, I might not know best for our kids. But, sh- but in general, if, like, if, if the question is whether or not we're going to call a doctor, usually it's going to be her that's making that and say, Well, honey, should we call the doctor? And she's going to say, Ah, uh, no, I don't think we need to, or yes, I think we should, and I don't know any better than that, so I'm going to really defer significantly to her in these things. Um, so, in general, I think her expertise is a blessing to our family. She, she exercises it with humility and grace, and so I really don't often see, boy, I can't even remember if I've ever overruled you or in situation. But, uh, but she'll ask my opinion because she's humble. And so I think it actually has worked pretty well, but I also do want you to weigh in. <laughs> well, I think those are, I mean, so we're actually in a similar setting. Uh, so my wife is an RN BSN, although she doesn't really like that to be shared because she never practiced, so she doesn't feel like she knows very much. But I certainly defer to her in most things as regards to uh, health and things like that. But I actually think what you already shared is really, really helpful. So whether or not our wives have a particular expertise in something, we still need to recognize that the ultimate leadership and decision-making burden falls upon us. Okay? So we need to just recognize that. Whether or not we are as informed about certain realms as they are or not. So we want to take the benefit and the blessing of all of our wives' wisdom in regards to whatever it may be, whether it's medical care or otherwise. I mean, sometimes our wife, if we take generalities, if we take generalities, okay, 
Wives are more relational beings. Husbands are less relational beings. You know, wives are like, well, did you talk to him about how he was doing? No, we just played golf. You know, this conversation didn't come up. Why would this conversation come up? Uh, You know? Uh, So our wives are helpful for us in helping us see, oh, I think that person was really burdened this morning. We may have not seen that, but they see it, and it's helpful for us to to know that. But then our wives also, so that's a strength, but then our wives also have weaknesses that we just need to be aware of. So I think Elisa's humility to say, so she already recognizes it. If she didn't recognize it, you'd need to help her recognize it, that when it comes to her own kids, she may not see things as objectively from a health standpoint as she does with the kids who are just coming in. So you need to recognize that about her, but she already recognized it about herself. But if she didn't, it would be your responsibility to help her see that and to lead her to see, okay, maybe, sweetheart, you're not being as objective. So I think in general, we just want to have a posture of recognizing that our wives are a a, a huge, ginormous blessing to us in every way, but we want to make sure that we are not, um, that we are still holding on to the mantle of the blessing and the responsibility of being the leader uh, of our family and not just giving that away. Because that wouldn't be for their good and it wouldn't be for our good either. Um, and so. Within those principles, there's just a hundred different ways that could be fleshed out. I, I hope that is of some help. What other questions do you have? Sarah? Question. On the thing you were just referring to, I think that a lot of times women can have more expertise than that on certain areas, but I think the weaker vessel issue makes it so that if we have to hold that responsibility on us for that subject, that might be too much for us. So even though we have ability to contribute and have lots of good wisdom in that, sometimes I think the burden of making the decision and holding that on our shoulders can be more than is, should be asked of us. That is a wonderful comment. Thank you. Yeah, which can I interject? I want you to ask your question, but can I interject because that ties into something I said when men I said don't trade passivity, uh, don't 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 trade just agreement for peace, right? Don't don't just be passive just for peace because you don't want the conflict. If you have clarity about something that's good for your home, right? Let's say you're in a in a tough spot and. Uh, you know, but you have some clarity. You need to move forward in that clarity, even if it might be bothersome to your wife. You need to you need to move forward and not just not do anything about it. I think that fits with what you're saying right there. Um, so my question is a gentle and quiet spirit, and I don't really know how to ask it, but I know it's not a doormat, and I know it's not being introverted particularly. So I guess I'm trying to figure out what it is then. Um, and, and it's probably you know a longer question than you can just answer here. Maybe there's some resource that you're aware of that would um, delve into that more. What it means to have a gentle and quiet spirit? Um, Can you give me, well, I'm just trying to think of, so, I mean, what does it mean to have a gentle and quiet spirit? Overall, I would say it is having a posture of wanting to follow and submit to your husband's authority with joy. Um, Overall, I would say that it is that. Uh, It's a posture, a heart posture that you're seeking to cultivate saying, I, I want to be a peaceable wife, not a wife that is constantly causing frictions by my actions or by my words, uh, but, a, but a peaceable wife, gentle and, uh, and quiet spirit. 
Um, it's a wife that wants to have a posture of following and be peaceable, not be a source of friction or conflict. Now, again, that that's not inconsistent with challenging your husband if he's wrong, um, if he's in sin. Um, and uh, and also, the husbands, this is why the word upon you... The, the word upon you is to dwell with your wife in an understanding way. You see, when everybody recognizes that everybody's equal in the eyes of God and that we're our best asset to each other in this game of life and as we're living out our lives, then this goes really, really, really well, right? But it's when the other doesn't do something that that's when these things all get tested. <laughs> and so... Uh, the, the call upon wives is to still submit and follow when things aren't going well, uh, unless, of course, it's abusive, uh, right? Then, then no, right? But it's to trust God as your ultimate provider and your protector um, when things aren't going well. And the call to husbands is, if you're not leading well, well, then brothers, join the crowd. That's where we all are. R- repent and just say, I want to grow, and Lord, help me to grow, Right? And then you together just keep moving forward. And when you have a spirit of grace with one another and you forgive one another for your errors and failings and foibles and stupid stuff that you said and did even last night, grace covers over a multitude of sins and it just keeps this train moving forward on the track. I don't know if that's helpful. Chris? sure you're already doing this, navigate navigate those things in private and not in the presence of the kids in the moment where you think he's not being relational and you think you see something relational, but he's made a decision that you disagree with in front of the kids. In front of the kids, you just follow that leadership and then later in the night, you uh, just between the two of you, you have a talk and you try to figure those things out. Um, And I would also say those questions like that are best worked out in times of non-conflict too. So if you're sideways about that, then that night is probably not the best night to try to talk about the principle at play. Um, So try to talk through the principles at play in times of non-conflict, in times where the kids aren't specifically present. Uh, And then it's just just between the two, you're figuring out those details because both things are true. What you said, both things are true. Sometimes it's, you know, he needs to... Young men have to be led in a particular way that's going to seem maybe insensitive or uncaring to a wife or a mom, but it's actually what the kids need, the boys need. But then there are other times where you're going to be seeing something that he doesn't see. Um, I see this in play with my with my relationship with Kristen all the time, frankly. So there are some times when you know she recognizes, oh, that is what the boys needed, even though that was uncomfortable for me. But there was actually, I mean, there was a period, there was just two weeks ago where Kristen just told me, sweetheart, I think you're wrong in the way that you're thinking about one of our kiddos. I think that, I think that you're wrong. And I was like, okay, help me. H- how do you think I'm seeing this wrongly? And she did, and she just explained it to me in a dispassionate way with us on her pillows. And it was very helpful to me. So I, I think both are true. So I think you guys just have to kind of talk that through. I will say one other thing, though. I will say as boys get older, I think, I think things transition more and should be transitioning more into dad being the main disciplinarian and not mom um, as boys are getting older. Let me just say that. Yeah. We're out of time. Let me pray for us. I hope this has been helpful to you. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Help us, Father, to continue to grow in the roles that you have for us, Father. Thank you for your grace. Please give us grace tonight. Please give us grace as we move forward. Father, there may be husbands or wives 
uh, moms and dads who are discouraged as it relates to tonight, uh, they may be thinking, you know what, I've just not done a great job and I'm discouraged and maybe they just want to quit. I pray, God, that you would protect that brother or that sister from discouragement and encourage them that the grace of Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ is there for them um, for their sin, uh, whether it's uh, maybe an overuse of authority or passivity on a husband, uh, a husband's part, or whether it's a uh, uh, not a gentle and quiet spirit and not following the husband's lead on the wife's part. Um, whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that for both husbands and wives, they would go to the fountain of grace even tonight if they're discouraged uh, in how they've related to each other, if they're discouraged in how they've related to their kids. And Father, may your grace be sufficient to forgive and to sanctify and help us put one step forward in front of the other and grow. And more than just not being discouraged, Father, I pray that the brother or the sister would reach out to someone at church and would talk about this uh, to take steps forward in their relationship with you and in their Christian discipleship in this realm. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.